Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, bless us to embrace your word, to trust it. Lord, bless us that your word will change us, change our perspective, change our view of you, to conform us to the truth of Scripture. And Lord, that it will affect the way we're able to cope with the things that happen in our lives. That it will affect even the way we're able to give ourselves away in love to one another. and Affect the way we obey you. Affect the way we bear up under pain and difficulty. Affect the way we bear light in this dark world. Lord, we come, as always, so needy, hungry, empty. Lord, you alone can fill us. You are our Savior. Even... As Hannah confessed, we all confess that you are the Savior of sinners. So we, we look to you confidently that you will bless us in spite of the frailty of the words that I may speak. And Lord, in spite of all the obstacles that are in each one of our hearts and all the pressures and distractions that we bring to this time, Lord, overcome it all by your Holy Spirit and bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Don't you love to talk about discipline? <laughs> it's the most hateful thing for any kid, of course, to talk about discipline, spankings, timeouts. That's the bad part of life. And so here we have the Lord bringing to us that very subject and telling us that this is one of the best parts of your life, believe it or not. We try to tell our kids that, don't we? Uh, this hurts me more than it hurts you. This is for your own good. This is, but it, it really doesn't translate many times. Uh, but we do see the result of 
our lives, having had that discipline, we see the result in other people's lives and children's lives that don't have that discipline. It's amazing that seeing that we still fight against God. We still don't trust him, even though on a human level, many of us adults have the basic idea pretty straight. We get pretty offended when discipline's not carried out and we shake our heads and wish people would do better at this or that. And yet we ourselves are uh, pretty pathetic at times in receiving God's discipline and seeing it from his perspective. So that's what we're going to look at this morning is this uh, teaching that the writer of Hebrews gives us on this subject of discipline. He's been talking about suffering this whole time. They're facing horrible suffering. And so as is the case in Scripture, the idea is to look behind the scenes, look at it from God's standpoint, look at what's really happening. There's the apparent obvious thing. And he says all discipline is painful. And you look at it itself and it's just totally distasteful, detestable. Who could like that itself? But let's see what's going on and let's embrace it uh, enthusiastically from God as to see to see what he's doing. Well, the first thing we're going to look at is that there's a personal word from your father, a personal word from your father. He starts by rehearsing to them this passage in Proverbs 311. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. But notice how he says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? What's interesting, he goes back to a proverb in which a father is speaking to his son about the discipline of the Lord. But now he turns the whole thing around and says, all of those words that are spoken to anybody at that time, now take them and and receive them as his speaking to you right now. Very personal. This word that went to this young man from his father years ago, thousand years ago, is now spoken to you personally, 3,000 years later for us. So the Lord is addressing you as, as children. So Westcott says, the utterance of Scripture is treated as the voice of God conversing with men. Do you read the scripture in that way as the voice of God, God himself conversing with you in particular, you personally? That's what the writer is calling us to, that this has a voice, this word. It's the voice of God himself. And if we don't recognize it as the voice of God himself, it's because of our unbelief. We are rejecting if we don't see it as God's word and approach it with that kind of reverence, that kind of honor, that kind of carefulness, even that kind of desire. You have the opportunity for the word of God to be spoken to you in your own living room. Before you go to bed, when you act at dinner, when you get up in the morning, you have the opportunity for the voice of God. So beware of unbelief. We we like to say, well, I believe in God. I believe that Jesus. Do you believe this is the word of God to you? And do you regard it as, does it show in your life? Or do you just basically neglect this word? That it doesn't play really a major part in your daily thinking. You're not memorizing scripture. You're not studying, trying to learn and and devoting yourself to say, by the time I die, I want to know this word as best I can. 
By the time I die, I want to get the most I can out of this word. I want to meet God in every way I can, embrace him and love him and have this cherished word as a part of my life to live it out or not. Or not. Not means you really don't believe this is God's word. You may say, well, I'm not a liberal. I'm a conservative. You know, I believe the Bible's the word of God. OK, that doesn't mean anything, does it? If we're not acting that way in our daily lives and treating it that way, ask the Lord to give you that kind of passion, that desire. It's a miracle of God. OK, bottom line, it's part of his salvation. I'm not just throwing this out to you and wanting to beat you over the head with it. I'm saying, hey, this may indicate, as it does for all of us, how much you and I need to be saved. Okay? How we need to be rescued from our deadness, our hardness, our blindness, our ignorance, our refusal of God and his authority and his glory that's available to us in this word. We need to be delivered from our unbelief. So let's cry out to him in maybe ways we haven't. Lord, save me. Save me from my unbelief in regard to your word. You see, he's, that's how he's addressing. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? The way you're acting in regard to the pain and the suffering that you're experiencing and the way that you're beginning to turn away from God and abandon and think that God's abandoned you. Have you forgotten? Are you not regarding the word of God that that should be the foundation of your life? Two, personal word from your father, but also the loving discipline of your father. A lot of time spent on that here, isn't there? The loving discipline of your father. Uh, William Lane calls it the responsible love of your father. We, we, that phrase kind of caught me, the responsible love of God. Because we, we think of parents having a responsible love, not just allowing your child to hurt himself or to hurt somebody else or to run wild around and destroy things. And you can imagine being in someone's home and, and I've had this, not here, nobody here, but I've had the experience of, a child being let loose in your house and the parents, it's like he's not even there. Or they expect maybe me to take care of their children in the home. And that's when you just think, won't you be responsible for your child? Okay? Everybody has that response, don't they? You just, you, 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 you know, your child is, is wreaking havoc here. Don't you notice it? Ah, how about God to us? Think he's going to be a responsible father with us? You think he's going to be concerned with how we live and what we think and what our character is? He's going to have the infinite sin. I mean, an infinite responsible love for us. So let's expect that he will care for us in that way. It's not a loving thing to a child, is it? Not to teach that child how to act in every circumstance. That's a destructive thing to do to that child. And certainly it would be for our father not to bring those things into our lives that would promote our character. And that's basically the point of the writer here. In fact, uh, it was John Owen that says, He loves before he chastens. 
You see, that, that's the way it's put here. Uh, verse, verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. That means the embrace means that he will chastise you. But see, we misread the chastisement. We misread difficulty. It's the very sign of love. It's not a sign of love, at least active love, for a parent to allow a child to wreak havoc in somebody's home. It's not a sign of love at all. It's a sign of laziness or fear or disregard or worldliness. You know, they just we think of of the sad situation that we've seen in so many circumstances where uh, I remember a guy that was in charge of boys club in Columbus. And I asked about some uh, presentation that we're going to have some award ceremony. And I said, so will their parents be here? And he said, oh, no, you have to realize that. There is no father and mama's own drugs. We're just trying to get the kids here. Well, is that the kind of father we have in heaven? You know, half drunk. Maybe he beats us up on us every once in a while. And basically he doesn't regard us. But sometimes the way we react to suffering, that must be the kind of God we think we have. Oh, God's beating up on me again. Half drunk, doesn't even care about me. Who do we think God is? Who do we think God is? By our response to suffering, you think we don't think we have a loving God. That we don't have a God who delivered his own son for our sake. And in that same love of the devotion of giving his son, he does every single thing in our life. Out of that same love. So that all things work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, he loves before he chastens. He chastens whom he loves. It's an effect of his love. It springs from love. So for the believer, for the child of God, there's nothing of punishment in it. Not even a tiny bit. It has nothing to do with condemnation, judgment, his frowning, putting you down and destroying you in any way. There's not even a particle of condemnation left for the believer because all of that was taken away in Christ. He suffered our condemnation. He suffered the punishment due to sin. There is no punishment due anymore. So it's only God's grace and kindness to bless us and to equip us and to change us and to mold us into his image. And he does this to all believers. Every single believer. So we mustn't complain as though I've been singled out. You know, why me? That's always an interesting thing. The person that gets some disease or has some tragedy. And that person never has said, why him, why her, why, why me? It really didn't matter up till now, but now it's me. The king of the universe got hit, you know, the queen of the universe. And suddenly it means everything that I'm having this suffering. So would we think now that God has singled you out among all people of the earth to do you wrong? Has God chosen to be unfaithful to you? You're the only human being. 
All of his children received chastisement of various kinds. And so we must realize this happens to every person. And for some people, it's going to happen sooner. For others, later. For some, in the middle of their life. It's tailor-made. But suffering is there because we all will benefit from it. We live in a fallen world and God uses that fall. He uses the pain and the destruction of this world, the curse that is on this world. Even the wickedness of men, as we sang in the first Psalm 76, he uses even the wrath of man to accomplish his purposes. Say, how could that happen? Well, it's said twice in Acts that he used the very suffering of Christ, evil men sought to put him to death and did put him to death, but they merely accomplished the purpose of Christ to do the world the greatest good that he could do through the death of his own son. That's the supreme example that he uses even the wickedness of man to advance his cause. So even if you're hurt by someone, they can't really hurt you or destroy God's purpose to do you good. They just can't. Now, your response to it could be more destructive than the thing itself to your life. But that's why everything belongs to you, as he says at the end of 1 Corinthians 3. Everything, if you trust him, everything becomes your servant for your good. It doesn't say he works some things for good. He works all things for good. And it doesn't say at the end of 1 Corinthians 3 that some things are yours. He, he covers the whole gamut. Everything is yours. That means everything is devoted to your good. And of course, sometimes I think about myself and others. Do we want to handpick our trial? You know, does God, should he get our approval before he brings a trial? You know, because we think this is not fair. Well, what did you want? Like women in a dress shop showing the little debutante. Here's a dress. Here's a dress. Here's a dress. Which trial would you like for me to bring next? You know. No, we, we submit ourselves to a wise God. Do we submit? Uh, does he submit his next trial in writing to us to give him the go ahead? But imagine your kids, right? Kids, if uh, say one of you lied and you went to the neighbor's yard, which was forbidden, you let their dog out and the pound had to come pick it up and they had to go and get the dog from the pound and you're in a whole bunch of trouble. You know. And your mother says, OK, OK, boy, what do you think I should do to you as punishment? And you say, how about ice cream and we all night? <laughs> yeah, you know, we pick our own. We pick our own. Uh, Punishment. We pick our own discipline, but God disciplines us out of wisdom and out of goodness, out of what will benefit us the most. And so part of it, you see, is recognizing pure love behind what he is doing for you. Pure love, even if it was done by somebody and it was unfair and it was terrible and it shouldn't have been done that way. You have to say, in the end, God meant good for me. And you're very familiar, aren't you, with Joseph's words at the end of Genesis. You meant it evil to me. You just think of the intent of those brothers to 
get back at Joseph. They were jealous of Joseph. They wanted to hurt. They, they would have killed him had not Judah delivered him. So they, they wanted to hurt him terribly. And so finally they just sold him into slavery. It's like, be gone. We'll never hear from him again. They had not one good intention for him. And yet, if he hadn't been sent to Egypt, they all would have died of starvation. Keep that in your heart. Please keep that in your heart. That when somebody does evil towards you, to see behind it, lurking, kind of peeking around with the little wink, okay? God smiling and saying, hey, this is going to be for your good. Don't forget who's running things. Don't forget who I am. Children that God has are like the children of the day that were born to be a man's heir, to inherit all that he had. And of course, uh, they would want to raise these children so that they would be able to receive the inheritance, so that they would understand the meaning of things and have the character to take care of that inheritance. And so God has an inheritance for us and he's preparing us for that inheritance. He will be constantly training us and caring for us. And imagine a a man who fathers a child and then he just abandons the mother. So there's no time with the child, no provision for the child. There are no embraces or kisses or reading the child at uh, at night, tucking them into bed. Uh, There's no naturally instruction or teaching or example and no discipline. But think of the whole picture. See, there's no discipline because there's nothing else. There's not this holistic love and embrace of the child that includes discipline. And that's what the writer is getting at. You get the whole package of a God that has a holistic concern and love for you, which includes his chastisement and his discipline. Or or do you have this God that's just fathered you and now he's abandoned you? No, he's a God that cares enough to discipline you. And if he didn't care enough to discipline you, he wouldn't care enough to do anything else in your life because of his abundant love for you. Chrysostom here in the early centuries, uh, fourth century, said, see, it is those very things in which they suppose they've been deserted by God that should make them confident that they've not been deserted. The very things that think God's abandoned me. No, no. It's the very sign that he hasn't abandoned you. That he's a hands-on God. That he's totally involved in your life. And that he's concerned about every aspect of your life. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And then I would call to your attention this great passage. You should compare this passage with the Hebrews passage. First Peter 4, 12 through 14, which is just a few uh, chapters over. You go past Hebrews to James and then Peter. Chapter 4, verse 12. Notice, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you shared Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And frankly, we have 
very little of that latter as they knew it, or even as our brothers and sister in Yemen know of it. Um, but suffering, of course, and trial involves every aspect of pain in your life, including persecution. And he's, he's particularly talking about persecution in this instance. But notice he says, don't think of it as something strange. That is, outside the norm of sonship, outside of the realm of your belonging to God. Don't think of it as, well, this is strange. Like you're supposed to be on I-35 and you finally, you, you suddenly find yourself on a dirt road. <laughs> and you think, I don't think I'm on the interstate anymore. And that's how we feel sometimes when we are suffering like, I'm not in the realm of his love anymore. I'm not under his care anymore. This is strange. He says, it's not strange. This is son, daughter kind of stuff here. This is right in the middle of what God does for his children. Don't think of this as strange. This is quite a part of what God is doing to conform you to Christ. I love that far side where the car is is on the moon. Okay. And. It goes something like this. I, I couldn't find the, to recall it. But now see, here's the you know, wife talking to her husband. There's the earth down there. I told you we should have taken a left at Albuquerque. You know? So that's the problem. When everything seems to go wrong, we, we tend to think I must not be in his will. I must not be loved by God. I must not belong to God. No, don't think of it as a thing that is strange. So don't only see it as normal, but see it as normal good, not as a sign of rejection, but of acceptance. If you've trusted Christ, if you've trusted Christ, it's not a sign of his wanton neglect, but his total involvement, not a sign of his desertion, but a sign of his devotion to you. Not a sign that he's turned his back on you, but a sign that his face is shining on you with favor. Not that he's depriving you, but he's enriching you. You see, it's all how you read your providence, isn't it? All how you read it. You read it according to his promise, or you don't read it according to his promise. You can think, I must be a building that's condemned and he's tearing it down. No, He's restoring you. He's restoring this whole community. He's creating a whole new neighborhood here. But he's tearing into our lives to do it. He's tearing out some boards to do it. He's ripping out walls to do it. He's cleaning out the attic to do it. He's digging up the basement to do it. But he's renovating. He's restoring. He's recreating us. And it's a holistic process. One of the events, of course, I have, you know, I don't give you that many, but here's a grandparent story. You know, Lila's shots have become a big deal because uh, Anna Kate was a little scared of the four shots at once. And so they spread them out over two, three weeks. And we had, I think we had three sessions. They did the grandmother and the mother. And so for for Anna Kate, she herself growing up would literally fainted every time she had a shot. Just out, you know. She would say, I can't see you, Mama. I can't see you. We'd know she's about to go uh, when everything whites out. So naturally, for her to go in with Lila to get a shot, she just, you know, she can't do it. So 
K, and I hope that Lyle doesn't associate K forever. Oh, you're the lady that gives me shots, you know. (laughs) But K loves to be in there just to comfort her and care for her, you know, tenderly. And my wife is such a tender, big-hearted person. And can you imagine her just heartlessly saying to a little three-month-old, Lyle, stop your crying right now. No. You think that's what she does? You think that's her attitude? You know it's not. Is that God's attitude toward us, though, that he doesn't care about our pain? He's not concerned. He's not breaking apart in terms of just his care for us. In Kramer versus Kramer, when uh, Dustin Hoffman's son fell from monkey bars and he rushed him over to the doctor, took him by hand, and there he was, and they were sewing up his face, and he was just right by his ear, just whispering into his ear the whole time he's been sewed up. He was just shaking and hurting and crying. And I think of the Lord that way. He, he, and we lose sight of this. The very fact that he's inflicting pain can cause us to think he doesn't even care that he's inflicting pain. Ah, get over it, you know. But no, he, he, he comes beside us and he whispers and he, he, he covers us with kisses and he embraces us. Where's the love of this mother and grandmother come from? It comes from the heart of God. It comes from the heart of God. And that's the tender love that he has for you in the midst of your suffering. And everything that he brings into your life has that tenderness of a mother Having to give her child a shot, but knowing how good this is and knowing it's causing pain. But the the greatest love is given to this child. Let me say, just as it's not an aside and it's, it's unimportant, but it does not mean, it does not mean that every person afflicted in this world, that it's a sign of God's favor upon you as his child. This is for those who've trusted in Jesus Christ. That may sound a little stiff if you're visiting. But you see, he offers his love and his care and his protection to you through his son. His son has so suffered on the cross as to cover the sins of anybody who will come and receive him. And hide under his protection and shelter under his righteousness and his glory. In fact, trusting in Christ is like stepping into the embrace that Jesus has with the Father. Isn't that wonderful? Stepping into the very embrace that Jesus has with the Father. That's what trusting Christ is. But can you imagine pushing that away? Pushing Christ away and saying, I don't want that embrace that Christ won through his own pain and suffering. And I'll just strike out on my own. I won't trust this God with my happiness. I'll just try to live my own life and get my own happiness. It's not for that person who rejects God's care that the promises are there that all things will work together for good. In fact, I'll say to you quite the opposite. To the extent that you completely reject this God, all things will work for your final destruction. Even if things go well in this life. And several times the writers of the scriptures talk about how the wicked seem to have it so good. They don't have the trials it seems like we have and 
They're making a lot of money and they're going on trips and they're popular and everybody likes them. And that can be ultimately the worst judgment that could befall you is that you are comfortable. You're self-reliant. Your life is so together that you just kind of sniff and turn your nose up at this Jesus that these helpless people seem to need. That would be your worst judgment. Your worst judgment. That you would never even see your own need. Well, let me just mention his last point, and that is the kind purpose of your father in it. He mentions, you know, that as you subject yourself to his discipline, you will live. He talks about how you'll share in his holiness. That means to share in fellowship with him, to share in his everlasting glory and his everlasting joy in his presence. To know his peace, his wholeness and his righteousness. It it has the effect of prying your hands loose of your idolatries. Those very things that it's like holding on to a a rafter in a burning building and God tries to pry you loose through suffering and chastisement so that you don't hold on to those things to your own destruction. God's always working to promote wholeness and righteousness in our life. And it's interesting, the phrase that he uses is that uh, that we may... In verse 11, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness or the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So he the Holy Spirit brings about this fruit in your life, but the trials are part of the tools he uses to bring this fruit of righteousness and peace in your life. And so I would urge you, as I urge myself, to see your trials as a kind of planting. It's difficult and it's costly to plant. But wouldn't it be foolish for a guy having planted, having worked through his crops, he's about to harvest, but he he starts in the first day of a week-long harvest that's going to gather all the harvest, and it's just too hot, he doesn't like the gasoline smell, the tractor's too loud, the, the bugs are bad, and he just abandons it all. And that's what happens if we don't trust him in the midst of our trials. He's going to bring he's going to bring forth fruit from this abundant fruit. Let's don't forfeit the harvest that he's going to bring about in our lives. Hervius, also an earlier writer, he says it's fathers who have hope that chastise their son. Who have the hope of what this son can be and do. It's because God has a future plan for you that he would chastise you. It's because waiting, waiting is this abundant river of goodness that he wants to pour out into your life forever and ever. That's his plan for your life. So he says, don't despise That means don't think lightly. Don't push these things away and not recognize the goodness of God and not trust him in it. And don't grow weary. Don't get despondent. Don't get down about your uh, sufferings, but believe in the great work of God in your life. Peter says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
See, they trust themselves to him in the midst of suffering and they continue with joy to give themselves away to other people. To grow weary means that you start pulling away from doing good to other people. Self-pity, martyr's complex, not believing in the goodness of God, and we start turning away from doing people good. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't share with each other our struggles, share with each other our struggles in, in doing good. I love this quote. This surprised me from Chrysostom, early quote in the fourth century. He says, the women who are brought up in the country are stronger than men who live in towns. Way back then. I mean, you kind of see that now, you know. My daughter who's living in the country. is probably going to beat me up one day, you know, getting so strong out there. But God means for you to be strong, you see. Why, why would they be stronger? Because they go through so much. They have such things they have to do every day. And God's not going to make you this little city-fied dweller that can't even get his fingers dirty. It's going to make you somebody that can fix stuff. It's going to make you somebody that can figure things out, somebody that can face things, somebody that can really love people when the going gets tough. He's going to make you strong. Philip Edgecombe Hughes gives this example. Five students, Protestants, imprisoned in Lyon in 1552. And they were shortly to suffer martyrdom. And they wrote to the church back in Geneva. We testify that this is the true school of the children of God in which they learn more than the disciples of the philosophers ever did in their universities. They said that they praise God for giving them by his grace not only the theory of his word, but also the practice of it. In our suffering, he's enabling us to live out his word. And a verse that was precious to me back in college Psalm 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Isn't that what you want? I want to keep his word. I want to be faithful. Lord, make me faithful. And there is a kind of reckless abandon. There is an entrusting of your life to him to say, do with me what you will. Just make me like Jesus. May that be our prayer. May we trust this one who has died for us to say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Let us pray. Lord, we honor you for your, can we call it, divine humility as expressed in Hosea. That when your people pursued idols, when your people there designated as virtually a prostitute that you had married yourself to, and when they were running after other lovers, you actually said that I will put a hedge of thorns and build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She will seek them but not find them. And then she will say, I'll go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. How can it be, Lord, that you would, through faithful affliction and faithful chastisement, 
constantly loosen our hands from our idols. And in my mind, O oh Father, have this infinite humility that you turn, you block the path of where our affections would go. And in one sense, you take us on the rebound and you embrace us. And you love us. And you count us as your bride. And you remove the names of the Baals from our mouths. And you make a covenant. And you say, in that very context, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. Oh, Lord, thank you for your love that draws us after yourself always. Oh, Lord, constantly give us more and more of a taste for you and less and less a taste for any of our idols that we have lurking in our hearts still. Draw us, draw us ever after you, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Won't you chase my fears away?